Well, I want to welcome you here this morning. It's a joy uh, to see you and have you here. And those of you who have been guests for a while and have become regular attenders are especially delighted that you've joined us uh, this morning. We've been looking at Christmas through the eyes of Matthew. And if you would, would you take a Bible and stand, turn to Matthew chapter 2. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that your servant Matthew was uh, called out of darkness to light by the Lord Jesus himself. And we thank you that by the Spirit you inspired him uh, to write this account of the things that he was a witness of. And to give us uh, this uh, special biography, the opening of the life of the Lord Jesus. And so we ask that your spirit might make this alive to us, that our hearts and minds might be quieted, that we'd be able to see beautiful, even wondrous things here in the scriptures. For we ask that we might see Christ. Amen. Amen. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, will by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Please be seated. Well, Christmas is a time of many, many traditions. Uh, When Nancy and I got Uh, married, we each brought traditions uh, from our uh, families to the celebration of Christmas. Both of our uh, families uh, decorated the house in festive colors with uh, greenery, with lights. Um, My family was not a church-going family, but Nancy's was, and so manger scenes were a part of uh, her Christmas decorations and celebration. 
when we had our own children, we added the use of an Advent uh, calendar, which we uh, read uh, with our children and uh, had family devotions after uh, dinner. Stockings were used in both of our homes, but in Nancy's house, it was very important that scotch tape be in every stocking. It's a tradition we've uh, maintained through uh, the years. And, of course, there are special foods, and many, many of you, I'm sure, uh, grew up with special foods. Uh, Nancy's uh, unique food and her family was Scottish shortbread. And to this day, uh, she bakes pan after pan of it uh, in, uh, as gifts and uh, for the family. In my family, there was peanut butter fudge, which never really caught on in our household. I ended up being the only one who ate it. Um, and, and I'm sure that you would agree with me that these traditions... Um, serve not only to help us to celebrate, but to actually enter in uh, to the meaning of Christ's birth. Special music, of course, is uh, one of the most distinctive things about this time of year. There are so many rich Advent hymns and carols. Maybe you sing them, perhaps alone like I do, uh, in the morning. Now, many, many traditions have built up around our text this morning. A lot of them are captured uh, in the carol, We Three Kings of Orient Art. That these men were kings, that there were three of them, uh, that each of their gifts had some special significance, and that they came to the manger. All of these are traditions, and none of them are reflected in Matthew's account of what took place. To really hear the story of Matthew, we need to actually strip these traditions away so that we can see what surprising things God's actually doing. These traditions in some ways are like the illusionist hand. They distract us from what's really uh, going on. The first really surprising thing that we encounter is, is that God is communicating about the birth of his son to religious people whom the Jews would have written off. They would have despised them. He goes to people outside of the religious establishment, to people who don't have the scriptures, uh, to make known that the king has been born. Now, our story opens in 7 or 6 B.C. Jesus is a toddler, probably between the ages of 6 and 18 uh, months when the Magi arrived in Jerusalem. Now, in case you're curious, the dating of Jesus' birth to AD 1 was by a monk in the 6th century, and he did not know that Herod the Great had died in 4 BC. (laughs) Um, So really his chronology is off in a significant way for us. Just who were these men? Well, our text says they are wise men. They were not kings. Actually, they were magi. They were astrologers. They belonged to a priestly caste, and they were trained in the interpretation of dreams and the stars. Some of them were honest men, and others of them were charlatans and rogues. They are probably from Babylon, the area that is in today's modern Iraq. 
And they came because they were watching the skies and they'd seen a star appear in the night sky and concluded that a king of great importance had been born in Judah. Now, just what did they see? Well, the famous astronomer Johannes Kepler said it was the conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn. And we actually uh, know from Babylonian inscriptions that uh, in uh, the year 7 BC, it appeared three times. And it was probably, we can sort of reason out from what we know, that it's possible that they would reason that Jupiter uh, was, well, the royal planet, and Saturn was associated uh, with Israel, and Pisces, the constellation in which it uh, would have appeared, uh, marked the beginning of the new year. And so when they put all that together, uh, they came to the conclusion, perhaps, that a king had been born there. The only problem with that is that actually this explanation, which Kepler was so fond of, has not actually been embraced by uh, many biblical scholars. And they've offered alternatives. Halley's Comet, a supernova. In fact, people continue to offer suggestions to this day. The problem with all of these uh, suggestions is verse 9. And listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child is. It's hard to read that and not think this isn't really an ordinary astronomical event. In my opinion, we're better off not trying to connect this event to some event that took place uh, uh, it, that's natural Rather, it's a fulfillment of an ancient prophecy that's found in the book of Numbers, which in part says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and one from Jacob shall exercise dominion. Interestingly enough, Balaam, a pagan prophet, is the one who brings this uh, prophecy the Magi came to Jerusalem naturally because if a king had been born uh, in Israel, then the capital was the place to look for it. And as they begin to ask about the new king, Herod is greatly disturbed. And we know from history probably why. Herod was a wealthy, cunning politician and an excellent administrator. His uh, handling of famine relief and uh, building projects were admired by his friends and foes alike. He built the fortress Masada. He built a port uh, in Caesarea where there was no uh, natural harbor. And he took the rather modest temple that Nehemiah built and, uh, well, he added to it in such a degree that it became one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. He came to power with the help of the Romans, but psychologically speaking, he was an insecure man. He had fought his way into power, and he was constantly experiencing opposition. And it was a dangerous thing to be perceived as opposing Herod. Members of his own family came under suspicion. His wife and his three of his sons, and all of them he had murdered. It was said in that day, it is better to be Herod's pig than his son. 
And so when Herod was suspicious, nobody was safe. And so that's why we read that all of uh, Jerusalem was troubled by this development. Herod calls together the chief priests and the teachers of the law. In other words, the religious establishment. Where is the Christ to be born, he asks. And they correctly reply, Bethlehem. Repeatedly he asks, repeatedly they answer. And then he has a secret meeting with the Magi. He intends to get them to locate this king for him. So, well, you know what he's going to do with this king. The Magi uh, let him know when the star appeared, and they head off, puzzled, I suspect, by the lack of interest in Jerusalem over this new king. But now the star and the scriptures guide them on their short journey to Bethlehem. And God's fingerprints are all over what's happening here, even though God's name's not mentioned explicitly. God is pursuing and revealing himself to these magi. From a Jewish point of view, they are just outsiders. And this truth is both humbling and comforting. It's humbling because it means that any steps that we take toward God, any uh, interest that we have in him has always been preceded by uh, God giving us a glimpse into spiritual reality. And so there's no room for boasting. It humbles us. It is comforting, too, because we see at the deepest level God's pursuing love that never tires of us. And in spite of the denunciation of astrology and scripture as a means of discovering the future, God accommodates himself to these men, to their understanding, to their approach to spiritual matters. This is the missionary activity of God. There's a warning here for us to be careful about deciding to whom God might communicate or what means he might use. God goes to great lengths to speak to these men in a way that they understand. And this is actually in keeping with a number of Old Testament prophecies that speak of God drawing the nations to himself. Indeed, Matthew emphasizes the fulfillment of prophecies in his gospel. And here in verse 6, he cites one from Micah. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Matthew wants us to know, right here at the beginning of his gospel, that the one who's been born king of the Jews is the ruler that all the world longs for. In fact, the last two sermons. We've seen that Matthew consistently wants us to see that Jesus is the long-awaited, promised king. But he's a king that's very unlike Herod, who craved power and whose rule was a reign of terror. No, Jesus is the shepherd king who will bring healing to the nations and who will care for each of his people. The word shepherd in Micah's prophecy conveys the kind of leader that Jesus is. Now, to appreciate that, you really need to understand that shepherding at that time was very different than shepherding here. 
Sheep are not fenced like we do and left to fend for themselves. Instead, they were totally dependent on the shepherd for their protection, uh, for a place to graze, for watering, shelter, and uh, tending to their injuries. Sheep simply would not survive long without a shepherd. Sheep were not only dependent, they're unintelligent. They are singularly dumb, and they're prone uh, to wander. And this helplessness explains why the shepherd does his work the way he does, what qualities uh, are needed in a shepherd. So the shepherd leads his sheep from the safety of the sheepfold at night out to the field to graze and to bring them to fresh water. He carries a staff and a rod to protect them from predators. This was the image that captured the ideal for kings in the Old Testament. And in fact, the first king after God's own heart had been a shepherd. And in many respects, David's life and reign reflected this shepherd care for his people. But a greater and better David was to come, one who lacked the flaws that the first David had, and he has come in the Lord uh, Jesus. He is not self-serving. He doesn't use people. In fact, he lays down his life uh, for his sheep. Have you come to the place in your own life's journey where you can see that you're managing your own life? You're running your own life has not brought you the happiness that you thought it would or the love that you had hoped for? Have you seen that perhaps you're maybe just a little bit like a sheep? Maybe a little bit helpless? Maybe a little bit, well, maybe not as insightful about life as you'd like to think? Matthew surprises us by the responses of those who know the scriptures best, the leaders of the religious establishment. The chief priests and the scribes know the Magi have come. The whole city of Jerusalem knows they've come. And they know he's seeking a king. And they are apathetic and disinterested. Even though uh, Herod has summoned them uh, for an audience and asked and confirmed with him that the child will be born in Bethlehem, None of them took the five-mile journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. Nobody took an afternoon just to check it out. No, they were content merely to cite the scriptures, but it didn't move them to action. They didn't act on its truth. These are the same people whose successors in the next generation who would speak would spearhead the execution of Jesus 30 years later. Matthew's hinting that the line between apathy and open hostility is in fact very thin. The line between apathy and open hostility is very thin. Here we're warned that Jesus is the great divider of people. That's true then as well as today. And that means we cannot long remain neutral toward him. 
Either we will, like the Magi, act on what we know and pursue what truth and light we have, or we'll be hostile to those who remind us of this truth and call us to examine our lives in light of it. Surprisingly, though, the pathway to joy is seen in the Magi. The Magi actually show us how it is that we are to celebrate Christmas in a way that goes below the surface of the frenetic pace we tend to keep this time of year and the commercialism that surrounds us. Those can easily become our primary experience of this time of year. These men show us in their seeking uh, uh, the way. They acted on the spiritual insight that they had. They weren't content to lead unexamined lives with just a passing flirtation with spirituality. No, they were gripped by what they'd seen, and they pursued what they knew earnestly until they found him. They didn't, like so many people today, try to keep all their options open and not come to a place of decision and action. And God met them. He didn't lead them on a wild goose chase. And in the finding, they discovered great joy. Matthew heaps up no less than four words here when he says they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. If you are here today and you haven't embraced him, we're honored you're with us. And I want to urge you to keep seeking, uh, to keep coming to church Uh, to get into a small group, and to keep asking honest questions. God welcomes honest questions, and so do I. The pattern of seeking leading to joy doesn't just happen at the beginning of a relationship with Jesus Christ. No, it is at the very heart of Christian spirituality. A.W. Tozer put it so well when he said that many people, when they come to Christ, when they think uh, they've laid a hold of him, uh, they shortly tire of him and they stop seeking. What a pity God longs to be sought after. The finding is only the beginning and not an end. But so many are satisfied with so little. You need to keep seeking until you experience transformation, until longing becomes a realization, until sorrows become joy, losses become baskets of plenty, anger is released, hurts are healed, bondage becomes freedom, and boredom is transformed into festive joy. Finding him leads to fresh experiences of joy. And the Magi show us that such an experience results in worship. Worship flows out of seeing that the shepherd king who has served you, who's taken on your sorrows, your hurts, your pain, he was in bondage to free you from your bondage. That he served you in a way that you cannot serve yourself. And when you really worship him with your whole being, you will get out of yourself. You'll get beyond your problems and your pain. And you'll see them in proper proportion. And you'll experience anew the care and the provision and protection of the shepherd king. 
That doesn't mean that every problem is going to melt away. But I am saying what will happen is, is that you will receive the grace you need to live with what you're experiencing in a fallen world. You will not face life alone. And Jesus will protect you from ultimate loss. And you can tell when true joy is expressed in genuine worship. Because like the Magi, you open your life and offer him the best you have. You give him your treasures, the treasure of your life. You see, they brought costly gifts. King gifts worthy of a king. We're not told they have some special symbolic significance. It's the value of them that shouts to us they are coming to offer a gift appropriate for a king. And when we worship, we too must offer uh, something that costs us something. We can't bring something that doesn't cost us anything uh, to God. What might that be? Well, it would be praise in the midst of sorrow expressing that he is enough for us. Trust when fear and pain and uncertainty are large, that we trust that, in fact, he will bring his purposes to pass in our lives, that nothing will frustrate his will for us. And obedience, when it seems that other people are disinterested or irresponsible, or perhaps it doesn't even make sense to you. We offer him the treasures of our dreams and our goals, whatever they might be, for friendship, romance, marriage, success, uh, purpose. If he's not Lord in all these things, you still are Lord over your life. We offer him the very substance of our bodies, our health, our wealth, our time. Matthew wants us to see God's missionary heart here. God is seeking outsiders. He's seeking to show mercy to those who religious insiders would just write off. God would have nothing to do with people like that. Let's be very clear. They're engaged in things that God forbids and condemns. God's plan in sending Jesus is to involve those who experience his mercy and grace in his mission to outsiders. The gift of the Christ child is not something to hoard, guard, or keep for ourselves. Now, it is the time of year when people are more open than they are much of the year to spiritual things to having some spiritual connection to the celebration. Many, many people are tired of, well, all the commercialism. And there are opportunities before you. As we read in Ephesians, God has prepared beforehand people whom he will use you to influence. And so you can take a few simple steps. Pray for the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. Find a way to spend time with them. If possible, do something with them that they like. And be patient. Sometimes in a friendship, 
You have to wait until a person experiences an illness, a hardship, perhaps depression, a loneliness, for you to see that opportunity to love and serve them. As you do that, as you step into what's going on in their lives, you'll be discover you've gained influence with them. Your home, your kitchen table are great resources. Invite people into them and relate to them as missionaries. Try to find out what's important to them. Learn about their life story. Love them well. Jesus has loved us well. That's why we've gathered to celebrate, especially today. Jesus has loved us so well. And this love he's given us, we must not keep to ourselves. We must share it with others. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, thank you that you sought us when we were outsiders to your family and uh, strangers to your mercy and grace. Lord, we pray for those that we think of uh, who... uh, haven't yet come to know the Savior. And we ask that you would uh, draw them uh, to yourself. You'd bring them, uh, uh, Lord, into a relationship with you. May you be pleased to use us. For we pray in Christ's name.